Hi, my name's Andrew Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writer's Toolbelt. Today's episode is an interview with Ottawa-based storyteller and science fiction fantasy writer Marie Billardot. Marie's writing has been nominated four times for Canada's biggest science fiction award, the Aurora Awards, and her new dark fantasy series, Nye, is coming out in the next couple of weeks. Marie and I had a great conversation talking about storytelling, her exploits with NaNoWriMo, how she uses retreat spaces to help her get her writing done, setting expectations and her advice for writers who are starting out in the craft. I do just want to say thank you to those of you that have filled in the survey on the website. For those of you who don't know about it, I am running a survey for subscribers to the podcast. It's just six questions and it takes you 60 seconds to complete it. And I'm going to use the answers from that survey as the basis for planning for the next year for the Creative Writers Toolbelt. If you are a subscriber and you can spare a minute, please do go to my website That's www.andrewjchamberlain.com and click on the link, fill in the survey. If you let me have your email address, I'll put it in a drawer for an Amazon voucher or an iTunes voucher. And I'll also be able to keep in touch with you in future about what I'm getting up to. Also, the invitation is now open for listeners to join the podcast writing community for next year. Are you setting yourself writing goals for 2015? I am. And the writing community is a new initiative I'm setting up online for a small group of us to share writing goals for the year and help and encourage each other to meet those goals. It'll be a chance to share ambitions, successes, frustrations and to ask for advice. Please do join us and get some encouragement for your writing aspirations. The invitations to join this group will close soon, so if you want to join, get in touch with me today. Mail me at andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. I'll get in touch via the website contact page, or I'm on Twitter at Writers Toolbelt. Thanks for listening. Now here's the interview. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a question going back to when you started writing. When did you first know that you wanted to be a storyteller? That's a good one. And it's kind of funny because it does link in a way very much so to wanting to be a writer as well. Most writers will tell you since I was a kid, I'd been making up stories and all that. But after university, I made a concerted effort. I really did want to be a writer at this point. And I figured, hey, I have some time now. I, I, you know, because getting a job and all that, I don't want to take any time. So I'll try to see. (laughs) It did take time, but... I'll try to see if I can maybe start actually writing now that I don't have essays to do it all the time. And I did that for five years, more or less writing. And about 10 years ago, I stumbled quite accidentally on a storytelling show, uh, which is storytelling is a bit like Bards of Old, you know, the oral tradition, um, people sharing their stories. And I fell in love with it. And I immediately signed up for a workshop to learn more about it. And I figured in a very strange way, I mean, a lot of storytellers tell very traditional stories fairy tales myths legends and you don't necessarily move outside of that I tell a lot of my own tales just because it's a bit like writing in a way that except my audience is captured they can't go anywhere (laughs) so (laughs) so while while publishers uh, at that point weren't picking me up I found an audience with the storytelling so that's kind of uh, when I decided I really wanted to pursue it now you are both a storyteller an oral storyteller and a writer which I think is really interesting because I want to explore with you the differences between those two art forms and differences between the two mediums so if we think about you as a storyteller an oral storyteller to start with what have you learned about storytelling from the process of standing up and actually relating stories, your own stories, to people? Um, a lot. <laughs> a lot. But I guess one of, the, one of the main takeaways from it, which does relate back to the writing, is really along the lines of clarity of idea, clarity of story. If 
I'm telling a story. It's more evident when you're doing a story because your audience is right in front of you. When you're reading one of my novels or one of my stories, I don't see a reaction. But when you're right in front of me, <laughs> I see when I'm confusing you. So if as a storyteller, I have a very clear idea of what I see, what I'm trying to relate, and what the thread of the story is. So what holds it all together and what I need to be following because I don't memorize the stories. I'll play with language, with images. Sometimes I'll change the mood just because the audience isn't in the mood for something funny or something sad. But that thread remains the same. So it's the clarity of where the story has to go and also what the story looks like, what shape it has. And if I lack that in the storytelling, I can tell right away, if I can't see it, they can't see it. They can't form the image in their heads. And I've lost them. Right. Now, you talk a little bit there about shape and story. And I'm just it makes me curious as to how much you do prepare before you go out and tell a story, tell an oral story to people. You say you don't memorize it, and, and that I guess you couldn't really tell it properly if you memorized every word, but how much preparation do you do, and how much do you kind of adapt and make it up literally as you're there in front of people? Um, it depends on the story. Uh, if I was uh, a professional trying to keep faith here, um, I would tell you I'm always extremely prepared, but I will be honest with you. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm presenting at the National Arts Centre, which is the biggest presentation space in Ottawa, performance space in Ottawa. You know, at that point, I'm probably working with musicians, maybe another couple of tellers, or this year we did a full telling of the Iliad, so it's 18 tellers. It's 12 hours of telling, not just me, but I'm doing a half-hour chunk out of that, and so that's a lot of preparation. That's weekends, that's studying your text, that's knowing your culture, what you're referring to, Homer's language, like, that's a lot of preparation. Now, let's say I'm telling a story. I'm a, a co-chair of uh, one of the reading uh, series in Canada called Chi Series. It's a national reading series, and there's different volumes of it in, across Canada and different cities. Ottawa has one of them. And uh, I often get to tell a hat story at the beginning. So it's a fundraising story. I'll tell a funny story, and people will throw money into the hat as I'm telling a story about this hat. And <laughs> now, <laughs> I'll be honest, for this story, often I make it light. I keep it funny. It's five-minute story. I'll prepare it right beforehand. What am I in the mood for? what would be hilarious at that point uh, have I heard something so sometimes I'll step up there and I'll I know my subconscious has been working on it because as soon as I have my first line the rest of that story will follow because I know where I'm headed so I, there's, there's, there's a big spectrum let's put it that way <laughs> <laughs> so you've referred there to reading from the Iliad. So that's a classic old tale. And mm -hmm. I know that you've also, you also tell your own stories. But if thinking about some of the old stories, maybe uh, fairy tales, myths, that kind of thing, what do you think creative writers can learn from the old stories, from, from old classic tales that have stood the test of time? Uh, I think there's a lot to be learned for sure. And also one of the main things to learn about them is not to give them legendary status on their own. I mean, they're not the end-all be-all. <laughs> I think that's important. A lot of people say, well, unless you've read the collected works of Grimm, well, what do you know about what you have to add to conversations? Like, no, no, let's just relax a bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think one of the great things is just a story that lasts that long obviously has something to contribute, whether it's just because of the lesson it gives or the, the characters, the action, the historical moment it highlights. There's always something that makes these stories last as long as they have. And that alone, just going into a story like that, like, like the Iliad, just, just because I just did it in June and it's still fairly fresh. One of the most beautiful things about the Iliad is how every person is named. It doesn't matter if they're Greek or Trojan who are dying on the fields of Ilium. They're all named. They all have a backstory. And, and it's these little tossaways, you know, like so-and-so, the son of so-and-so waiting for him 
back home in. You know, so, so they all are given that humanization. And, and to me, that's one of the reasons why the Iliad is such a powerful text. But each one of those stories has been around for that long for multiple reasons. So it's always interesting to think what made those stories stay. And is that something I could learn to adapt my own stories? If you've got favorite stories, perhaps they could be as old as the Iliad, or they could be more recent stories, but the ones that you know that you have drawn on. And is there maybe something in that? Can you tell us something about those stories and why you think you can draw from them and perhaps what we can learn from them? You know, I, I love a lot of old stories. I mean, the Iliad I just went on about. Uh, we did the Odyssey as well, which not to go after home. We had the Odyssey. I'm doing it again in Vancouver next spring, actually. I'm such a sucker for this. I'm going three time zones away just to be able to tell it again. <laughs> I just can't resist the story. But, uh, you know, the Odyssey, it's the story of coming home again, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, it, they're beautiful stories. I love the stories that, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but I think I'll just kind of throw a tarp over it instead. I love the stories that have the extra nuances to them. Like, Russian fairy tales are devilishly dark. They're, they're like the snow maiden, Snigarushka is, is, and I'm totally mispronouncing that. Uh, they're devilishly dark, but beautiful because they have so much texture on them and I can't help but think what were the people telling these stories telling them for like at the end of the snow maiden everyone dies basically it's it's I did a retake of it it's called a Facebook fairy tale where not everybody dies I modernized it but and I brought it in Facebook but there's this idea of what was happening at that time that this story gripped the populace so strongly that it stayed with us to now and it points to Things that are happening nowadays in our own world, right? That's what I love about them. If you look at uh, just morning tales like Little Red Riding Hood, uh, Sleeping Beauty, I mean the old, old versions, uh, any of the old fairy tales, uh, King Arthur I'm a big fan of because it's got such a dark, gruesome area from the Mallory writing to when Chrétien de Troyes took it up and the, the way they evolve through time as well. So you have the chivalry that came, the Knights of the Round Table, you know, Lancelot, which wasn't part of the original tellings and then they kind of work their way in. Like, I love that length of time and how a story adapts and changes with time, which is important to remember that stories aren't static. They shouldn't be static because they reflect all of us in a very important way. So it sounds like you, you, you're seeing stories as very living, organic things which change and grow mm -hmm. or, and maybe they kind of morph into different things to, to meet the needs of the current moment. Definitely. And the other thing that I just wanted to pull out from what you said there, do you think that some of these stories last because there's something about the human condition or something about life which is kind of perennial which which lasts forever but it, it speaks to that and it, so it speaks to people generation after generation i think so definitely it's a bit the uh, you know the good old archetypes like sunrises things like that you know i think it speaks to archetypes to to longing a lot of them that last speak to a longing or to fears fears are always there and they'll always be there it's part of what keeps us alive and and just you love romance those are things that stay around and tragedy the things we can't control in life uh, and that's one of the reasons I think fiction is so popular as well uh, in stories just because they give us a sense of order or a sense of meaning that we can't necessarily find otherwise in our by ourselves in our own lives when we're living them. So is fiction and storytelling a way for us to process and manage 
the, the unmanageable things in our lives? I personally think so. I have a degree in religion and culture too. It's anthropology of religion, in which I, I absolutely adore the study of story and how it impacts culture and how culture is impacted. Um, I think it definitely does. Uh, and even if, if we look outside of our time, it's always hard analyzing what's happening right now because we're very much in the moment, right? We're, we're creatures of the moment and we're never really here though because we're thinking back, we're thinking forward, we're everywhere. We're specially challenged. Time, time's challenged here. <laughs> It's like Doctor Who everywhere. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I love about it, even if you look into the past and you look at stories uh, in the old myths, like uh, Egyptian mythology, let's say, since it's a well-known one, if you look at how the stories evolve, their mythologies, their mythos evolved to reflect what was happening at that point in their kingdom so that the gods were still supporting the kings there. And if that changed, the dynasty changed in such a way that the god had to change, then it would change on, on the major scale, not on the little home home settings that was on a personal level but on the major scale that mythology would change that's why the mythology the stories aren't they don't all mix together they don't all fit together and so that really highlights to me how we need those stories to make sense of what's happening right now when the very stories we use as our secret canopy of the world if you will change according to what's happening right now in our own time so if I'm thinking about writing a compelling, relevant story, it sounds to me like I may need to have a mix of things which are timeless and things which appeal to people because they're human, but also things which are very contemporary and things which touch and deal with whatever is happening in my culture or, or my time. Is that true? Have I got to mix these two things together somehow? I think in a way, yes. I don't think in a forest where, like, you don't need to put, especially if you're not writing uh, in this world, like, let's say you write second world fantasy or you're writing a mystery in, like, Russia or whatever you're doing. Um, you know, I think depending on what you're doing, it, it can be as simple as what's happening now, you know, like, there's the, the threats of war, there's a lot of fear. I find fiction always reflects it very much. Regardless, people can't help but seep their own visions of the world into it. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, invisible narrator. I mean, the narrator is always present to some degree, and that's the writer. Uh, and, and I think like those timeless ideas for a good story, if you look at the things that last and the things that make all the the big books the bestsellers it's the basic stuff to like love uh whether or not it's successful a good mystery or something that uh, keeps us going why is this happening conspiracy theories are always popular right well in fiction it, it's that suspense that mystery uh so that the fear of things fear of losing a loved one fear of losing your home of, of failing all of those things work well into fiction because they're both timeless and very contemporary at the same time and nowadays you have some things that are highlighted more than they were even 10 years ago uh, just because the world changes so quickly right and you obviously are someone who communicates story on the page and also verbally so what are the differences between those two would you say what are the main differences in terms of the kind of construction of a story or the content of a story <laughs> when I started off as a storyteller I thought it could be the same thing you know I could just take <laughs> I thought oh I can take a told story and try to get it published yeah. no yeah. Uh, I've had one of those published <laughs> It's very much, uh, when you come to storytelling, even though it has telling in the title and, and it's verbal, you try to show as much as you would in writing, you know, the show, don't tell basic rule, where it's a yes, trick of the yes, words, right? Yes. Um, in storytelling, sometimes you have to fall back a little bit more on the telling aspect of it, just because to show you have to often, not always, but you have to use more words. And <laughs> in storytelling, if you take your listener off one thread of the story for too long, it'll be hard to 
bring them back. It's it's whatever they've heard, whatever they've captured. You want to put emphasis on the main points. And everything that's secondary, like uh, the texture of the story, comes in on a much lighter and softer scale. Whereas in writing, you can have the great descriptions of areas which add to the tension. But in, in storytelling, it's it's easier to lose your listener. You also have less time, whereas you can tell a story in 6,000 words. Typically, one page of text, let's say 500 words to 1,000 words, can take about five minutes of telling, depending on what type of story it is. So you, you have to shrink it a lot more. And dialogue is a lot harder in storytelling as well, because you sound like you're talking to yourself for a long time. Some people can do accents, which is great. I'm French-Canadian, so as soon as I try to do an accent, it turns into a French-Canadian accent. So I just can't, and I know I can't, so I don't, I don't go there. So I wanted to pick up on the fact that you are French-Canadian, as you say, and you're operating in two languages and two cultures, perhaps, because I think a lot of your storytelling is in English, but your heritage mm-hmm. is, is French-Canadian. So how does that work for you is that is that a comfortable thing for you to be operating in those two languages and two cultures uh usually not very effectively (laughs) it's a lot of miswords i have a tendency if i can think of the english word i'll use the french one with just an english accent see if that passes it it very rarely does i have to tell you Uh, But overall, uh, I absolutely adore it. I mean, my family is all French, very French, except for my brother and I. We're the bilingual ones, but all my cousins, all my aunts, all my uncles, my parents are a little bit bilingual. (laughs) But I have the best family in that they will buy all of my books, and they will try to read them. And they, they do this fun exercise. I can even say it because I know most of them just won't. Even if they listen, they won't They won't even understand what I'm saying, which is great. <laughs> but they'll buy all of my books. And then there, there's this exercise my mom and my godmother do. And they will select, who's her sister, they'll select a sentence out of each of my books, usually very near the beginning, which I'm guessing is as far as my aunt gets. And they'll analyze this. It's just a random sentence. It could be her cloak billowed in the wind. <laughs> it can be just that. And they'll analyze that sentence and then they'll call me up on it and tell me all why they think this is the best sentence of the whole book (laughs) and I adore it because it's very supportive I mean they're very they're very not English (laughs) it's a very French family Um, but what I love about it on a on a more serious note is that I have a very different pop culture background than most of my other friends because I didn't grow up on the same on the same things because I was in a different language uh, and I have a whole other strew of legends and myths to bring in because I grew up the French Canadian myths and I get to just use those and adapt them and it's fresh to uh, the English Canadian or the English culture just because I'm I'm bringing something from my own which I think is great. There's always language challenges like I mentioned wrong words my grammar is a little bit different my voice is very different in my books because of that coming from another uh, language but that I think that works to my advantage personally coming back to to your oral storytelling I've seen a little bit of you in action on YouTube and (laughs) one of the things that really struck me is how you use a lot of humor now maybe it was the bits that the clips that I saw and I've I've spoken about humor in one of my podcasts. I think I called it something like the serious business of being funny because being funny is actually quite difficult, I think. But you seem to be able to do it. Is it as important to you as I I seem to think it is? And how do you manage humor and bring humor to storytelling? 
Uh, that's a very good question. It's funny because I've had some people come to my shows. Most of them are funny. And then read my books and my books are much darker. And I can talk to that in a little bit. But I, I do do some dark shows. Uh, the, the advantage of humor, humor is, is hard to do uh, on multiple levels. When I started as a storyteller, I couldn't pull off a funny story to save my soul. It's it's like <laughs> you think you're funny and you're telling a great story with all these these great nuances that should the situation itself should be hilarious. But everybody has what I call storyteller face which is they don't know storytelling and all they know is someone's in front of them telling them a story so they should probably take it seriously because they should learn something. It's like it's like 80s cartoon, you know, when they had the morals at the end of He-Man and stuff like that. It's, it's come back to haunt us all because they expect me to enrich their lives. I'm not here to enrich anything. I just want to entertain. Uh, so at the beginning, I tried funny and I flopped. It's spectacularly. It was awesome. <laughs> and then I, I pulled it back and I thought, well, if I can't make you laugh, I'll make you cry. So then I, I got really good at making people cry all the time. And, and that, got a, that got a little bit hard on the soul. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to make them laugh. But I find the best way to make them laugh is to bring stories that, to me, are inherently funny and that I inject myself in the situation. So I'll tell a lot of first-person narratives because if I'm the one being the idiot in the story, I'm not picking on anyone else, which it can make people uncomfortable. And I'm just having a fun time. I'm being silly. I'm being ridiculous. And then people can just come along to ride with me because it's like I'm bringing them into my living room. I'm sitting them down and I'm basically saying, okay, let's let's just tell a joke here. And, and the joke's on me. So have fun for the ride because I'm okay with it because I think it's hilarious. So it's by making them comfortable in that way that I find uh, the humor comes through a lot more. But I have to see the humor. If I don't see the humor in it, they won't see the humor in it. It's You can take the best joke and poor delivery will kill it. So it feels like you're inviting us to share the joke with you. You're, you are, you're kind of implying this is self-evidently mm -hmm. funny, whatever it is that you're saying, and you're simply inviting your audience to share in what yeah. is obviously a funny thing. And, and, they, and they go, yeah, okay, we'll share that. And they all are. Yeah, exactly. It's like we're willing to come uh, come along for the ride. I mean, I mentioned a little hat fundraising stories. I did a few different ones at first. I did a horror one because it's a, a darker reading stories uh, series, and and then I, I did other ones. And then what I landed on, which seems to work every time, were just these. They're basically a five minute story about how I got the hat, or how I lost the hat, or how. And it's I, I live with a, a roommate, so and she's at all these shows, just shaking her head in the back. But uh, I bring in just this discussion where I'm being overly enthusiastic and, and silly and accepting and she's she's being clever and kind of taking advantage of the situation by making me bake a lot of cookies or by you know so, so I have the juxtaposition of, of the two of us the two slightly fictionalized characters and then the audience is in for a treat like they, they know that this is going to be fun because this character of Rumi which you know is an actual person uh, she's in the room I usually get her out at the beginning and then she's also part of, of the Facebook social media persona too so the story in a way continues on my social media where the same interplay is there and and it, it makes it invites them into that circle, but but I find that regular just funny, and I'm in a way I'm the butt of the joke, and it's okay because I'm the one telling it anyway. So if I think it's funny, then let's all think it's funny together. 
So even if the joke's on you, if you're laughing at mm-hmm. it, we can all laugh too. Is yeah. That, okay. right. a, and, and there are stories where you can try to be clever and you're making fun of someone else, but that can make people uncomfortable. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. Depending on how it's handled, some people handle it very well, but it's easier to just yes. put yourself in that. You're silly, you're overly enthusiastic, and stuff happens to you. Hey, everybody gets that. <laughs> now, one thing you mentioned just um, a couple of minutes ago, which I want to pick up again on, is I think you were saying that, that it, it is as if the audience is supposing that you are going to share some deep moral point or that there is going to be some kind of didactic element to what you're doing that that they're all hanging on for you know like the wise woman to say something (laughs) at the end which they're all going to go oh yeah now i now my my life will be better because i've heard this do you ever i mean do you is that the case have i interpreted that correctly and do you ever do you ever kind of say something which it may not may not be like massive but is some kind of a point a reflection a comment on the stuff to people yeah i do like to make i mean i have again a degree in religion and culture so i mean i love themes and i love meaning Often what I'll do now is I'll actually start my storytelling sets by explaining when they're all new listeners, and I know they are, and I can tell they're embracing themselves for a life-changing experience, which, you know, storytelling can be, don't get me wrong, but it's also entertaining. Sometimes what I find works well is to interject that humor with that discovery and then to layer it on with if you have a meaning even if you don't they will find it the listener will find it it's like the reader in your own story i don't think i think you need to be clear on what your character tries to accomplish and through that they'll find meaning one of my first stories published was called the taste of sand and i now have a full storytelling set developed around it because when the taste of sand was published it was a very dark story and it was about an abused woman and uh, my mother read it and she said you gave her a crappy ending i don't like the ending and <laughs> she she understood that story great <laughs> Now you get it, Mom. (laughs) So I took that to heart because it was my first published story. And my mother is someone I do respect very much. And I paused and I decided, why does she think it's a crappy ending? And then I have a whole storytelling set where I explore. It starts off with the original story that I tell. And it's dark. It's hard. It does not have a good ending, as my mother pointed out. And then I explore different endings. So it's a story on how to find the perfect ending for your character. So I, and I have zombies at one point. I have her doing ninja moves. I mean, it goes downright silly. We start dark. We go into the downright silly. And then once the audience has relaxed a little bit out of that darkness, then I bring it home and I wrap it around with what I think is the perfect ending where I give the character agency. And because of that, by the time you get there, you get this perfect storyteller silence in the room where everyone then reflects on the journey they've been on and that's that's a fun one but that's a one hour set it's rare that you're given a one hour yeah i love it when people say can you talk for an hour yes i can (laughs) so (laughs) wow yeah and that to me sounds as if it isn't so much you're saying here's a story here's the moral to it thanks it's more let's go on a journey together and the value is in the journey rather than just the kind of punchline at the end that's a perfect way to look at it like most good stories would right and also because i don't know where you're coming from where somebody in the audience has come from i don't know what layers of interpretation you're going through to reach a conclusion so i'm not going to hand it to you you'll find it your way yeah that's how i see it so i want to move on think about more of your written work now so okay. I read one of your books, which is Destiny's Blood. There's there's a couple of things that just like struck me quite powerfully from that. I wanted to just explore that with you a little bit. The first of those is there just seem to be this contrast between that which is fragile, exotic, delicate, mysterious on the one hand, and just kind of full on brutal violence <laughs> on the other. <laughs> 
or, or not brutal violence necessarily. I don't know whether I've interpreted this correctly, so that's what I want to talk to you about. It. There does seem to be this contrast between <laughs> that which is fragile and that which is like just destructive. I think it's the contrast between the things that are now in the moment, in a way, because the fragile things can be in the moment as much as the brutal things, but we tend to forget about one or the other depending on what we're immediately faced with. It's very much a play on contrast as well, because uh, in Destiny's Blood, uh, Layela, who's the main character, as, as you know, is a florist. So for her, she interprets things with, with something that is very fragile, vegetation, with uh, flowers, which but it's also very resilient, and it can survive through very difficult circumstances. And, and then the violence, uh, well, a lot of the ships exploding just made me laugh. Uh, <laughs> A little bit twisted on my part, but that was just fun space battles. Um, but it's the contrast between the two. I think there's room for both of those, and and there's also the it makes each stand out all the more because they're both there. Yes, and I, it does stand out. Maybe it's not necessarily a conscious, or maybe it's just a partly conscious thing. But as you say, your main character is a florist, and plants, I suppose, in, in they encapsulate fragility, but they also can be pretty mm-hmm. hardy things. Yeah, and and then when I started writing it too if just you know I really saw it like I wanted her to show that she could be strong while still being very in touch with her fragility and I think it went back to Layela because I had a really hard time I had to rewrite the whole book and just kept two scenes because Layela if I took her and I replaced her with a sack of potatoes in the first draft you got the exact same story So, as I didn't want a sack of potatoes as my main character, I had to give agency. And once I found out that she had that strength, despite all of that fragility, in fact, the fragility informed and made that strength more. And then I, then I had a well-rounded character with, with her own ability to make decisions and not be a sack of potatoes, which is awesome. And it's a book where most of the characters are female. How do you present female characters which have agency and strength and purpose, but are not just like superheroes or something? They're they're, they're neither sacks of potatoes, nor are they kind of made of titanium. Um, I think I follow it very much the same way I do with with my male characters as well. But I mean, there are... I have mostly females just because it's it just turned out I didn't even think of it I wasn't trying to write it was just that's what I wanted to read uh, but I am very lucky I consider myself very lucky in that I have women in my life who are extremely wonderful and extraordinary best friends uh, my mother my family members and when I think about my characters I think about them and I think because I've had the chance to see them in extremely vulnerable moments and in moments that were difficult and I don't even know how they pulled through but but they did and I look at that at those moments and then I imagine the private moments and whatever they share of themselves through conversation I don't go interview them that that would be a little bit invasive and then when I think of how those people are so well-rounded and I take what I find are those pinpoints of light that they've shown me through our friendship through our relationships and then I can inform my characters that way so it's very much cheating (laughs) I don't come up with all of it in my head (laughs) so you observe life and draw on it for your art yeah and I love chatting with people so I get a lot now, there are two trilogies that you've written. One of them's in the fantasy genre. One is leaning more towards science fiction. What is it about those two genres mm-hmm. that attract you? <laughs> There's so much about them that attract me. Up. I, <laughs> so much. I actually learned English because I started reading uh, Second World Fantasy, Forgotten Realms novels. Uh, it was grade nine, and I remember 
my uh, teacher said, you have to read three books this year. And I was so behind in English. I'd gone to six grade schools by then. I was, I was nowhere. You know, the curriculum had changed everywhere. I remember at one point they had me locked in a closet with the best student or in the supply cabinet to try to learn English. Like, good motivation, people. Anyways, it didn't work. So by the time I got to grade nine and I needed my English credits to con- finish high school, which was uh, five years after that, my teacher was embarrassed practically for me. And he said, you have to read three novels. I don't care what they are. Don't follow. Everybody else had a list of classics. He goes, don't read those. I don't care. Just read three English books and write book reports in English, and I'll give you a great note. So I'm like, okay. And I got home, and I was mad. I just, the whole, I'd been fighting it at that point for a while. And and my brother said, no, you're going to like these books. And I trust my brother. He's my big brother. He generally has my best interest at heart. And uh, he handed me three Forgotten Realms novels. And I devoured them. And I remember thinking what I loved about them is, I I barely remember them. Honestly, I don't remember which trilogy it was because I I didn't speak English enough to know what a dagger was. I kept calling it a daggy. And I wanted one because you could do everything with a daggy. You could cut stuff. You could open locks. You could, it just did everything. Defend, defend. It was great. But what I remember about this is it was the sense of empowering Like, you could go through all these horrible things and either you were smart enough or strong enough or skilled enough to find a way out after falling a certain amount of, of, you know, pages, which is most of them in these novels. Um, And I absolutely love the fact that it's, it's a full escape because you get to step out of this world but everything is a reflection of this world regardless. You get to explore themes that you can't necessarily in a book based in this world because then you're stuck in certain political, social, economical realities. But in, in second world, so either fantasy or science fiction, you can just explore what you want and you're not necessarily completely ignoring what you should take into account when you write in this world. It's really wonderful. So some of it is you're escaping, but there's something very familiar about it, isn't there? Or there's something you're drawing on the human condition, I suppose. Definitely. definitely. I mean, I find science fiction, if you read science fiction from the 1960s, it's very, even though it's a very forward-looking genre in a way, right? I mean, there's some science fiction that's nowadays, some near, that's 20 years, and then some really far out that's like hundreds, thousands of years even in the future. But what I find fantastic about it is, you know, science fiction in the 60s represents the 60s. It's all the hopes and dreams and fears are all encompassed in that by what we've managed to accomplish in the future. And same thing with nowadays. You encapsulate science fiction. It's like what we hope we're going to be later on or what we managed to overcome. It's in there. And that, that's just one of the many things I love about this genre. So I want to ask you a little bit about you as a writer. Now, I know that you occasionally go and visit a convent or a former convent. I think to get in the right space for your writing. Yes. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about what's important to you in, the, in terms of space and environment for you as a writer, perhaps for writers generally. Yeah, I write pretty much every day, uh, just as a start off. So I go to a coffee shop or I write at home or I write at a friend's house, whatever it is. I, I do it pretty much every day. But there are those points in the story. And for me, I find it's either not necessarily right at the beginning of the story uh, rarely actually I'm going back I've gone to the convent usually twice a year for a few years now and it's when I'm about two thirds of the way through the story so I've gotten through what I call the middle slump so that part in the middle where you just want to toss the manuscript out the window and never look at it again and I'm ramping up towards that climax and if I go to the reason I go to a convent isn't for um, a religious region it's because you can get a silent retreat so nobody expects you to participate in anything or even 
even talk. It's great. And what they offer is a small room. The ones I go to in Quebec, mostly on the other side of the river, uh, I'm in Ontario right now, is they have a small room with one bed, one desk, and one chair, no internet access, sometimes no reception. You know, they offer the three meals downstairs. As long as you show up and grab your food, it's all part of the price because it's it's retreat. And you just get to totally, completely, 100% immerse into your story because nobody is there to break you out of it. It's an experience. It's it's absolutely fantastic. It will drive you bananas, the silence. If you're not ready for it, you have to brace yourself a bit. It's an experience unlike any other where you can actually let your story just run free in your head. There is nothing stopping it. There are no obligations. There's just you. There's just story. And there's just the laptop or the pen and paper. It's completely fun and crazy. And you said that it, it's usually when you're about maybe two-thirds of the way through or just over half the way through the story mm-hmm. um, that you, you benefit from this. Moment. Yeah. What is it that you are achieving or what is it that you're trying to do at that point in time? What is it particularly about that point in the story that requires space, thought, focus, things like that? I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, I write adventure stories very much, so at the core of them. Um, and at that point, there's two things happening is one, I'm ramping up you know, the action is really starting to go crazy. I'm ramping up towards the end of the story. And I need to bring all those threads I've left hanging. I need to weave them back in, in a way that's satisfying for the reader. So it's, it's I find by then the story has gotten so big. And, and I'm trying to bring it together to that giant climactic moment and that denouement that if I'm able to just retreat with it and focus on it completely it really benefits from it because I see all the threads so much more clearly usually to give you an idea when I get there on the let's say I go for three days so the Friday night let's say for example I get there at night I'll just review my notes so I I take notes really way too many notes as I'm writing things I should go back and fix things that don't work things I've left hanging I just write them all down so I don't go back in my manuscript and fix them right away keep going forward momentum I'm all about forward momentum and then um, I'll look at those notes and then I'll just let the story kind of wash over me I generally won't write that first night I'm exhausted you know I it's been I've just gotten out of the city I'm now in the usually in the country or, or somewhere more withdrawn and uh, I take my notes I, I read them and then I go to bed early the next morning I'm up early because the, the nuns get up early so really you kind of do too because they're not necessarily quiet uh, <laughs> And I start the writing and then I'm ready because I've let the story kind of wash over me as I slept. And then over the next, yeah, and then it's two, three days of just getting all those little threads in. Of And I play a game with myself. I'll put little sticky notes every half hour and write my word count and tap it on the wall in front of me so I see my progress. And the best I've done with that is it wasn't, there weren't good words. I definitely had to do a lot of editing, but in uh, three days I managed to pump out 45,000 words. I don't think I slept. I, I don't think I slept, honestly. It was it was a bit an act of despair. I was stuck in this book. I needed to get it done. It was the second book in the Destiny series. But once the floodgates opened, there was space for all of that water to come out. I told myself, keep going, keep going. It doesn't matter. And I, I wrote. <laughs> and is there a sense in which maybe you needed that time and space because you've got to manage the beast, which is your big plot. You are the boss of it. You've got to bring it all together. You've got to focus, grab it, master it, and just draw it all in. Yeah, no, that's that's a good way to look at it definitely because because when you're thinking you know and if you ever pause your thoughts and pay attention to them you'll notice you're thinking about a thousand things at once right like 
oh, I have to do the dishes, I have to call the bank about this, oh, I have to feed the cat, or whatever, all of those little thoughts. When you break away from, A, the routine, so your mind is already more open because you're not in your usual space, and when you're in a place where you have nothing to do except try to remember when to go down for your food, <laughs> which, you know, sometimes you miss, that's okay too, then your story can just basically come in, and you don't go there. Again, it's all about managing expectations. You don't go there much like you don't go to a storytelling set waiting to find enlightenment, you don't go to a convent to write waiting to find personal enlightenment. You go there to get the words down. You know, some people could go and just take walks around the land for hours because it's, while well, I'm letting the story take hold, it's like, no, the story's there. You've been thinking about the story in the back of your head. You need to get those words down now, and you've got the headspace to do it, so do it. It's fun. Right. I think you have made the leap from part-time writer to full-time writer. You're talking about all these kind of things in your head. Now, I think you have dispensed with the aggravation of having a, a day job. Day job <laughs> has to write. So or how did you make that leap I have. from uh, just writing in the evenings and weekends to being full-time? And what advice would you give other writers mm -hmm. who want to make that leap? Well, first of all, it's definitely expectations. I saved a lot of money. I made sure that I didn't bring my living just on the, on the money end. I mean, because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. I own my own house. I have a car, but we don't live expensively. Uh, I live with a roommate, like I mentioned, and she doesn't mind the lifestyle that she has to take because we, we, of course, pay half and half into everything. And then, then she doesn't mind not living a certain posh lifestyle or <laughs> fancy at all because she lives with someone who's really watching her pennies. Now, I've been lucky in that I have some good savings. I've been pretty smart with my money overall, and I've kept my cost of living down. What I do on top of that, though, is I have six novels out and multiple short stories. I'm looking for new opportunities on that end uh, as well. So, you know, who's offering what? What what kind of great short story could I pump out for a magazine? The storytelling honestly helps. So, although I'm working full-time as a writer, you can't expect regular paychecks as a writer. They don't even come every year from some publishers. I mean, it's just the reality of the business. So, the storytelling helps me a lot because it's something, if school calls me about a storytelling set the next Next day, I can, I'll just say yes. And then that helps to pad my pockets. But also, the day job I used to do was in communications. And so that was everything from web development to social media to media uh, work to just general messaging. So I did the whole slew of that. And now, because I had a good reputation in my field, and I'd worked in it for 14 14 years about and I was a known entity and I and people know I do work I also contacted everyone when I was leaving saying look I had a great time at this job I absolutely loved it there's no room for both anymore but if ever you need some help with a project something quick turnaround just give me a, a shout and then I, so I take on some contracts here and there and it's just to pad the bank account to be realistic that's the realistic way to look at it I think and if I needed to I would take a big contract for a month I would even take a retail job for a month I mean at the end of the day you, you have to take care of business which is your house and your loved ones I think you kind of slightly alluded to, to this earlier when you said that you were working on the second book of this Destiny series and you needed to get it down now I think you were under contract is that correct to, to write the, the second and third book in that series so you, people were kind of on your case I guess to get it done how did you maintain the discipline of writing when you had to kind of get that get that work done uh, for the second book not very well I missed my deadline for that one much to my shame I will admit it you know I, I burnt out for the second before writing the second book I'd, I'd written my first trilogy uh, in pretty much a year I wrote two books and with a full-time job on the side with the storytelling taking off it was uh, it was it was a lot I was living breathing that 
that story. I, I didn't have a social life. It was it was crazy fun, but crazy. Uh, and I burnt out, so I had a hard time uh, getting the words out, unfortunately. It took me a little bit of time to get back into it. I had to refill my, my writing well. I had to get back into life. But for what I do now is I keep my, my own expectations more realistic. And I have a great friend who uh, you had on your podcast uh, just a, a little while ago, Derek Kungskin. He's, uh, he's good at helping me keep my expectations realistic, like what my goals are, my plans. But I, I have a little one of those little calendars on my wall with the erasable dates. And I actually write what I'm expecting to achieve each week and with the end goal in mind and and then I just go to achieve it with a realistic amount of words. So if I tell Derek, for example, Derek, I'm going to write 5,000 words a day this week, he's going to write back and say, is that realistic? And I'll be like, fine, I'll write 3,000 instead. So, And in my head, I'm still striving for that first target, but now I have something more realistic because it's depressing if you set yourself a goal that you can never achieve. So if you can only do 100 words a day, it's better than nothing. I find if you put a little bit down each day, that story thread will keep going it'll be strong but if you set something like 500 words and you have kids you have a day job you have a husband you have like you have all these things that and you can't write your 500 words and you're just going to give up you're not going to try anymore that's not a realistic way of doing it you have to keep moving forward at your own pace so realistic expectations that you can achieve and therefore you don't get disheartened because you keep failing to do like 10,000 words a day or whatever crazy thing you might set yourself Exactly. There's okay. nothing more depressing than continuously missing mm. goals. So set them realistic. Are there any lessons that you would share with other writers just around social media, publicity, how you promote, mm -hmm. how one promotes one's work? How do you promote yourself as a writer or as an author? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the main things to remember is your best promotion for your work is yourself. So if you go, let's say you decide you're going to be on Twitter and you tweet all the time about your work and buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. All you're doing is standing on a table and throwing a tantrum. It's not going to make anyone want to buy your book. <laughs> but but if you're sharing parts of your life, if you're being, you're engaging, you're, you're funny, you're communicative. If you look at my Facebook, my feed or my Twitter feed, it's very rare that I'll post buy my book, buy my book. But my books still sell my ebooks quite better actually than my print books because I think because I mean there's there's just there's no empirical proof necessarily but uh, I think because I, I'm engaging I'm fun you know I invite people to just sit and have a chat type of thing so I, I maintain that those two very clearly in my head I try to be a person not just someone pushing a product and uh, also uh, just to remember that if you're having a bad day just stay off social media <laughs> the world doesn't need to see your meltdowns <laughs> It, it's not about I email my friends when I'm having a bitch today as I call them I'll just email my friends and I will ramp and rage and it'll be great time and then when I can put things in perspective again then is the time to show it to the world because you know let's just let's self-edit self-censor a little bit there's no shame in that yeah and keep it realistic you don't need to do every social media outlet just do what you can handle it doesn't need to go all crazy. So coming back as well to realistic expectations or crazy expectations, <laughs> I know that you've done NaNoWriMo in the past. I think you may be doing it uh, this time around. Mm -hmm. um, well, two things. First of all, can you, for people who are listening to this who are going, what's NaNoWriMo? What's the other? Can you tell us what NaNoWriMo is and tips that you might have for people who are having a go at that? 
Sure. So NaNoWriMo is the National Novel Writing Month, which is every year in November. There's a website if you just Google National Novel Writing Month. And it's basically you're committing to write 50,000 words uh, of a novel uh, during this month. And it's it's a lot of fun. If you go on the website, there's actually a lot of great resources on it uh, on how to keep writing and worth checking out anyways. Some tips I would give is all back again to the realistic expectations. I was actually talking to a friend uh, a week ago who was debating whether or not to undertake it and she was saying she didn't think she could get 50,000 words out of it and I said, if you're not sure about 50,000 words, why don't you just do a self-commitment of 30,000 words or whatever is realistic for you, right? I mean, I know the goal is 50,000 but let's make it individual and personal here. Uh, so you know, again, keep it realistic. What can you accomplish? How much do you want to accomplish? Which work are you going to be uh, working on. It's a great way to get something kickstarted or finished, and it's a great way just to use an excuse because a lot of people are doing it. So you have this great online community who are supporting each other. And something else is once you're done your uh, novel, put it aside for a month or two and then go back and edit. Learn to fine-tune art of editing. Uh, one thing you'll hear from publishing houses is in after NaNoWriMo, they get a lot of submissions that are completely crappy because people will just send in their finished submission. And 50,000 words isn't even uh, full-length adult novels so it's uh, do your research don't finish finish and be happy celebrate the accomplishment it's a lot of work you did awesome you came through with your sanity somehow but don't just leap into the next step give it a moment step back it's all good it'll still be there when you come back back it up though to make sure it will still be there when you come back <laughs> so thinking about all the different things that you've said in terms of your experiences as a writer what do you think is the most important advice you would give to other writers trust in your vision trust in your own story and in your voice and by that I mean you might not know what your voice is but trust that what you're writing is going to be good and even if it's a story that you're writing that you think you know this this isn't going to fly anywhere nobody will read this just ignore that write the story and even if it can't sell I'm, I'm, exp I'm expanding my own advice here even if it doesn't sell don't worry about it because every piece of writing you you put down every word you add you get better so keep writing it's the only thing that will make you better as a writer keep writing strive to be better at it learn to edit yourself it, it, it's all skill set that are very intimidating at first but the more you do it the better you'll get it trust me on that trust me on that because I've come a long way from the beginning <laughs> it's made a difference <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and are there any books that you've read? Just out of interest, this is just a question that's popped into my head. Are there any books that you've read on writing that you think actually that really is that it really is a useful book? That's a useful people should read that. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, I'll be crapped if I can <laughs> think of one of them right now. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite ones, actually, uh, and I haven't looked at it in years, uh, but when I was starting out and I was just trying to write on a, you know, build a routine of writing on a daily basis just because I see my career as a long-term thing, not a something that's going to happen overnight, so I wanted to learn to write every day, is Natalie Goldberg's Writing Down the Bones. It's an older book, and I, I'm pretty sure it's still available on the bookshelves, though, and it's daily exercises, daily thoughts on what to do with writing, and I, I remember that changed a lot of how I saw writing and how I saw writing practice. So that's a fun one to check out, even if you don't do the exercises in it, like each day there, like there's little um, a little chapter you can read a day, and I, I really like that. So I'll go with that one. Ha-ha. That's good. I'm pausing slightly because I'm going to look that up now. 
And, and while we're still chatting, I will then be able to say awesome. where they can get it. Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. Okay. Looks like it's available. And Amazon is your persuasion. I guess you could get it there or you could probably go to wherever else you get books and, and find it. So just to finish off then, a couple of final questions. What are you working on now and what are you working on next, do you think? What's, what's the next thing for you? Uh, my next thing, which is actually coming out uh, soon, is called Nye. It's a series of novellas, and I'm really excited about this one because it works to the writing and the storytelling, but it, it's a series of novellas that are going to come out, five novellas, and then some extra stories afterwards. So it's a serialized novel, and it, it takes the all the old stories, the old fairy stories, so the really horrible ones where people swap out children and kidnap people and just like these horrible stories. And it's basically what happens when the veil between our worlds and the world of the fairy collapses and all of those horrible creatures come into our world it's very it's dark fantasy but it's got a it's got a it's a lot of fun lots of action and i on top of it on top of having these ebook releases and then print books uh, as well there's going to be a storytelling show based on that so it's going to be a i'm i'm hitting both my passions here the writing and the storytelling yeah, yeah. Now I have seen the cover yes. of that book, and it does look really cool. I have to say, thank you. Maybe we should just check that out. It does. I, I, you look at the cover of that book, you think, "Wow, what is this going to be?" <laughs> it's going to be. It's uh, going to be a romp. To be honest, it's my, it's my best work to date, and I know every writer says that about every new book, and I certainly have. But the imagery and the texture and the characters, the strength of them, and and the horrible things and and the beautiful things. I just, I don't know. I'm totally in love with this, and I can bring a lot of my storytelling voice into it as well because it's a fairy tale people expect more of that that poetic storytelling voice in it and i'm i'm having a great time with it i hope you'll check it out and you'll like it so is that out now or is it out soon how, how it's going to be out that? soon okay Okay. Yeah, it's going to be out soon, within the next few weeks. And just on that subject, if people are interested in checking out your work, I mean, well, let's talk about your writing first and then maybe your storytelling. If people want to check out your written work, how can they do that? Where would they go to find that? Uh, it would be on my website. So uh, that's www.mariebilodeau.com. And you'll find everything there. Okay. Now, it's going to be quite difficult for me, like several thousand miles away, to kind of check out your storytelling. But if anybody's in like, <laughs> downtown Ottawa or I mean you mentioned where did you mention you were going next year uh, Vancouver Vancouver that's right yeah. if people want to hear you speak have you got things coming up storytelling events coming up soon you know I've just had a great Halloween run and I'm almost out of shows for the uh, for the year but I've got some fun stuff coming up in spring a lot of great shows I've got one that I'm working on right now with it's very early but it's going to be a show celebrating spring with a singing group made of three female singers called Vocata they're local to Ottawa and it's it's going to be wonderful uh, and I've got also uh, you mentioned in Vancouver I'll be telling the Odyssey there and I'm also going to be telling I mentioned a storytelling show that goes with Nye that show will be presented uh, it's not Vancouver it's at Port Coliquam it's north of Vancouver but it's it's going to be really worth checking out if you're in that area and, and my website I have an appearances section so I pretty much go anywhere people invite me and storytellers will work for food sometimes so I, I really I really do wind up a lot of places so you know keep an eye on that <laughs> so people just can go to your website and check that check out the appearances yeah, uh, yeah. menu if they want to just see what what you're up to yeah and where i'll be heading okay. next yeah now just to finish is there anything else that you want to say any reflections or anything else you want to comment on or anything we've talked about 
Well, I guess I'll finish on a slightly corny note for the writers because I, I, I know this is very writing focused, right? Um, and, and what I want to say is, you know, if you're starting out right now and it's, I know that the podcast focuses on giving some tools for the beginning writer, uh, especially um, if you're starting out, see your career in a way that it's long term. So find ways before you're published, before you have those expectations, find ways to make your routine work around what will need of you. Don't expect that you'll get a giant contract and you'll be able to go full time so whatever you're going to do with that writing which I hope you'll stick with it make sure that you can maintain and sustain it and love it enjoy it It, you gotta love what you do right there we go wise words (laughs) (laughs) that's brilliant thank you very much Marie thank you for talking to us today it's been great to talk to you thanks for having me it was a lot of fun Bye. bye Thanks for listening to this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. The survey is open on the website. And if you're interested in joining our writers community for 2015, do get in touch with me. Thanks. Bye-bye.